All right, good morning, everyone. How are you all doing today? It's great to see such a nice crowd out there. And uh, blessed today, the Lord's Day, as we worship and we have a potluck and have our uh, congregation just spend some time together today. It's a beautiful day to worship God. So uh, today we're going to be continuing in our study of Acts, and we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 20, uh, that Rick read for us. And we're going to be looking at trying to avoid two satanic traps, uh, praise and envy. And before we get into it, let's go to the Lord and ask for help. Lord, we do thank you for this wonderful, amazing day, for this wonderful, amazing church. And as we dig into your word, Lord, uh, help us to understand what it is that you would have for us today. Uh, Lord, we know that Satan is out there and he's looking to trip us up. And we, Lord, just come to you for prayer, for help, uh, that he would not have his way with us, that you would protect us from the evil one, and that we would be able to share your love and spread your word. Uh, to those who need to hear it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wouldn't call myself a big-time fisherman by any stretch, but I like to go fishing. And uh, when I go fishing, uh, I usually go to a lake to try to catch bass. And uh, when you fish, it's helpful to know something about the fish you're trying to catch. Do they like warm water, cool water, deep water, shallow water? What do they like to eat? When do they like to eat it? Uh, knowing these things tells me uh, what kind of bait to use, what time to fish, uh, where to fish. And so uh, these are the tricks of the trade that we need to know when we're going to go fishing. Uh, I might use a rubber worm, for example, to try to catch bass, but that's not the only lure in my tackle box. If that doesn't work, I will try uh, something else. I have lots of lures in my tackle box. And Satan is a lot like a fisherman too, right? He, he knows a lot about us and he wants to lure us to destruction. And he lures us to destruction by knowing many things about us. Uh, and two of the favorite lures that Satan uses to lead us to destruction are praise and envy. Uh, and Satan used both in this episode at Lystra to, to try to stop the gospel uh, from being preached. And whether people praised Paul or whether they envied Paul, Satan didn't care. He was trying to distract Paul so that he would not be able to preach the gospel uh, the focus needed to stay on Paul, and certainly the, God, the, the focus was not to move to God, and certainly not to Jesus Christ, and so that's where uh, the traps lie. So in verses 11 to 18, Satan's trap was that Paul would be praised, and that he would either become so enamored with the praise, or so distracted by the praise, that he would not preach the gospel. And then in verses 19 and 20, when that trap failed, well, he brought envious Jews from Iconium and from Pisidian Antioch, uh, who were so envious of Paul that they could stop the gospel from being preached by having him stoned. Uh, ultimately, both of those schemes failed. But praise and envy are two satanic traps that Satan uses in our lives, and we have to learn to recognize them and to avoid them. But before we talk about uh, those two particular traps, let's talk about the inciting incident, the thing that got this whole thing started uh, in verses 8 to 10, uh, which was the healing of the lame man. Now, you'll remember from last week that they escaped from Iconium when they were going to be stoned there, uh, and they moved on to Lystra. And Lystra is this town here. It's just below Iconium, which is about 20 miles to the north. And so they moved uh, a little bit south, and there they were going to preach the gospel, or they intended to. And uh, Lystra was a Roman colony, uh, like Pisidian Antioch, but it was completely pagan. Uh, and so they believed in multiple gods, uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of different gods. And 
Paul and Barnabas, as you know, usually went into the synagogue first to preach, but there was no synagogue in Lystra, which means that there was likely almost no Jewish presence there. It was all pagan. And so they probably, instead of going to the synagogue, they would have gone to the marketplace to preach. And there uh, they begin preaching and they see this man uh, who is just sitting there by the side uh, listening to Paul preach. And then uh, in verse 8, we see Luke tell us uh, in three different ways that this man is crippled so we don't miss the point. Uh, He was lame. Uh, He had been that way from birth, uh, from his mother's womb, and he had never walked Uh, Do we get the picture, right? He's lame. He's not going to walk. He's unable to walk. He's never once walked. Uh, Luke here is setting us up uh, for the miracle that is about to happen. Uh, And so as Paul preached, verse 9 says that this man uh, had the faith to be healed. Uh, Some translations say to be saved. The actual Greek uh, would say to be saved. Um, But the story is very similar, if you'll recall, back in chapter 3 when Peter and John Uh, healed a lame man. Uh, In chapter 3, the difference is that that man didn't have faith. And however, this man, he listened to Paul preach and he had faith. And so uh, I take this to mean that faith is not a requirement necessarily of healing, but this man's salvation created in him an expectation that he could be healed. He knew that if his soul had been saved, then certainly God could save his body and, and heal that as well. And so as we think about that, we need to understand that God certainly has the ability to heal us uh, whenever he wants to do that, right? Uh, Saving our souls is the real heavy lifting, right? To take a soul uh, that is uh, full of sin, full of pride, full of rebellion against God, and to turn that to the living God is nothing short of miraculous. And if God can do that with our prideful, sinful hearts, uh, healing the body after that is child's play. Uh, But that doesn't mean that God necessarily will heal us from every sickness or infirmity that we ever have. Uh, God will heal us in his own time and under his own will if that is his, his desire for his own glory. And so it's right that we should pray for healing. But of course, even more, it's more important that we let God be God and we trust him with the outcome and with whatever his will happens to be. Well, in verse 10, Paul commanded this man uh, to stand up on his feet and walk. And so, back to verse 10, stand up on your feet and walk. And this man does Paul one better. He leaps up to his feet and he begins to walk. And I'm sure that right after this happened, Paul's intention was then to say, give glory to God. God is the source of this miracle. And then move on to preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul's plans were interrupted by Satan's first trap that he laid here, and that was undue praise. They intended to praise and worship Paul and Barnabas as if they were gods, taking the focus off of God and putting all the focus on Paul and Barnabas. So uh, Satan's first trap. Uh, There is a great danger, as you know, in receiving uh, the praise of men. The praise of men can be intoxicating. Have you experienced that in your own life when people praise you You get filled up with a sense of pride and joy, and and you can become addicted to that kind of praise. Uh, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited because of the great things that God had shown him. And Moses was prevented from entering into the promised land because he stole God's glory by striking a rock with his staff and saying, must we bring forth water from this rock? And God's like, who's we, right? (laughs) 
I'm the one bringing the water from the rock. And so Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. And now Paul and Barnabas are faced with this very real challenge that they are going to have praise of men heaped on them. Uh, And how will they respond? Will they give glory to God for this miracle? Or will they try to accept this praise for themselves? Well, we see how they reacted in verses 11 and 12. Uh, Many people saw that the miracle had been done. It was done in public, and they begin to shout out in the Lyconian language, uh, the gods have become like men and come down to us. The people of Lystra had a legend that uh, Zeus and Hermes had come down to them in the past, disguised as mortals. And when they came, they received no hospitality in this village except from an elderly couple. And so Zeus and Hermes wiped out, annihilated the entire population of Lystra except for this elderly couple. And of course, the people of Lystra knew this legend, and they certainly didn't want to be wiped out again. They thought that the gods had returned back to them. And so here they are, uh, ready to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because they didn't want the same fate to happen to them that happened to the folks uh, in their legend. And so the people of Lystra honored Paul and Barnabas as though they were gods. And they called Barnabas Zeus, probably because he was older. uh, And Zeus, of course, was the the, the chief god. And then they called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And Hermes was the, the messenger between the gods. And he was known as the god of oratory. And so it would make sense that Paul as the speaker would be called a Hermes. But you have to realize that Paul and Barnabas don't speak the Lyconian language, so they have no idea what's going on here. Uh, They're just shouting and they're calling them names, but they don't understand what's happening. And then there's this temple of Zeus that's located just outside of the city of Lystra. Uh, It's gone now, but there were many temples uh, to Zeus in the ancient Greek world. And I want to show you here, this is the temple of Zeus at Olympia uh, in Greece. And you can see from this, that they were very serious about their worship of gods, right? That is not a cardboard cutout. That is a serious temple that they made. Uh, And the priest of Zeus then begins this parade of bulls dressed in garlands or wreaths, a procession from the temple into the city. And Paul and Barnabas, of course, were no stranger to ritual sacrifices, right? They knew what ritual sacrifices looked like. And they finally begin to catch on that these guys are going to sacrifice these bulls uh, to us. Uh, And so this begins the moment of truth for Paul and Barnabas. Are they going to accept the praise of men? Are they going to stop this sacrifice and try and point these folks to the living God? Uh, The trap that Satan laid was that Paul and Barnabas would become so enamored with the praise of men or so distracted by this praise that they would not preach the gospel that gives glory to God and leads people to Jesus Christ. So let's look at how Paul reacted to this. They tore their clothes. That's what Jews did whenever they saw or heard blasphemy. And then they rushed into the crowd to try to stop this sacrifice uh, from happening. And so this ought to be a lesson to us about the dangers of accepting praise. Uh, Praise simply means the expression or approval or admiration for something or someone. And it's good to offer genuine praise or to receive genuine praise. There's nothing wrong with praising your kid for getting good grades or your wife for making a decent meal, a good meal. There's nothing wrong with that for accepting that, but we can't let praise go too far. It becomes dangerous when it causes us to dwell on ourselves, to be filled up with ourselves. 
Uh, it becomes dangerous when we like praise so much that we'll even manipulate others to get praise or when our good works are motivated by our need to be praised, when we become people pleasers just so that people will praise us, and, or if praise causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, or causes us to take glory that belongs to God, or, or causes us to exalt ourselves over God. You remember what happened to Herod in chapter 12, right? He was preaching to these men, and they said, it's the voice of a God, and Herod accepted that praise, and he was struck down eaten by worms by accepting uh, that praise that did not belong to him but belonged to God. Jesus said, how can you receive glory uh, from one another and when you do not seek the glory of God? That's John chapter 5, verse 44. And so praise can be like a drug. It can be like riches. The more we get, the more we seem to need. Uh, how many likes or comments did I get on my Facebook post? How many Friends do I have, uh, followers on Twitter. Uh, how many compliments did I get for doing this job well? Or, or how much praise did I get because I volunteered to do whatever it was? Uh, we have to be careful about that. These things can take control of our lives and they threaten to take control of Paul and Barnabas here. But they did not fall into Satan's trap. They refused to accept this undue praise and they wanted to tell these folks about the source of the miracle, about God. But the problem was that Paul was not dealing with the Jews and their one true God. Uh, these pagans had no concept of monotheism, a, a one God. Uh, they had a God for everything. And yet it's amazing how adaptable Paul was. Uh, Paul could always find something in common with someone, a common ground, and then be able to start his preaching uh, from there. And, and Paul didn't have very much in common with these folks, except that they were all human beings and he knew that they all needed God. And so he says in the first half of verse 15, why are you doing these things? We are men just like you. We have human natures just like you. Paul didn't make himself out to be more than he was. He claimed equality, not superiority. Uh, to, these, to these pagans here at Lister. And he said, we have good news. Now, now turn from these vain things, from these worthless things, and turn to the living God. Now that is a message that is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. But if Paul had fallen into Satan's trap to accept praise and be distracted from preaching the gospel, he never would have gotten to that message. In Paul's day, the worthless things that they were chasing after were wooden and metal idols that they made gods out of. Um, in our day, we can worship money, careers, cars, houses, security, sex, entertainment, power, popularity, fitness, longer life, even praise, and a thousand other things that you could think of. Uh, most of these things are not necessarily bad until they control your life and consume us and become more important to us than God. But in our culture, isn't that exactly what has happened? Uh, people are making gods out of these things to the exclusion of God. So Paul told a very large crowd of people to turn from these worthless and vain things. And these were very religious, very, very serious religious people. And, and this was very bold of Paul to do. This could have gotten him killed. And we'll see that it very nearly did. But if we're going to preach the gospel, we have to be bold too. We need to tell people that these things that they are chasing are ultimately worthless. And we need to tell them that what is missing from their life is not more stuff and not more sin. It's a savior. 
It's Jesus Christ. That's what's missing from their life. And these pagans, of course, may have been willing to add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. Uh, After all, what's one more God among the thousands they already had? Uh, But Paul was not willing to allow them to continue in their ignorance. He rejected their praise and he pointed them to the living God. And that's why in the second half of verse 15, Paul told them, there is a God and he alone made the world and everything in it. You know, God gives us enough revelation uh, to know that he exists. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God gives us light. Whether we receive more light depends on what we do with the light that he has already given us. Uh, Consider the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8 or Cornelius from Acts chapter 10. Uh, They sought after God and God gave them more revelation uh, until they were saved because they responded properly to the revelation given. But God is not under any obligation to give more revelation to those who have rejected the revelation that they have already received. So we need to coach people to be open to receive more revelation. And as they receive more revelation, we we work with them, pray with them, teaching them as we can in hopes that they will be saved. Well, Paul said in verse 16, in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. The Gentiles were not God's chosen people, but this was a new day when all could receive salvation through Jesus Christ. And God was calling all people to himself, including the Gentiles now. But their past ignorance did not excuse them because as verse 17 says, he didn't leave himself without a witness. Creation is his witness. Common grace is his witness. Common grace is the grace that God gives to everyone. And that's what we see explained here uh, in this verse where he says, he he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Everybody received that common grace. Matthew 5.45 says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God takes care of those who don't even know him. That's common grace. And this was the best way that Paul could think of to explain God to these pagans. They would think that Zeus provided all these things, but Paul was saying, no, there is a God above all creation uh, who lives in heaven and he provides grace out of his goodness, grace, and love. So Satan's first trap to stop Paul from preaching failed. Now Paul could preach the gospel, right? Now that he did not accept praise. Well, not so fast. Uh, Satan has more lures in his tackle box. And the next one he tried was envy as we come to uh, verse 19. Some of these Jews came from Pisidian Antioch and they came from Iconium. And you'll remember uh, from last week that the outstanding feature of these guys was that they were jealous, they were envious, and that's why they turned against them. And envy is the coveting of a quality or possession or attribute that God has given to someone else. And, And God had given Paul and Barnabas this word And he uh, allowed them to come preach in their synagogues. And the synagogues were filled with people that usually didn't come. And the people were jealous. They were envious of Paul. And so they didn't like Paul. They didn't like his message. And they followed him all the way from Pisidian Antioch down here to Lystra. 
And these Jews must have been very persuasive because they won over these crowds in Iconium who were just about to sacrifice animals to them as if they were gods. Uh, So what a turn, right? When we see that the people of Lystra must have believed whatever lies were being told because uh, they stoned them, right? And we saw the same cycle last week, acceptance followed by rejection. Uh, The same uh, thing we saw with Jesus, a parade uh, on Sunday and then crucified the following Friday. And so we think about the increase in persecution. Think about Paul as he's on this first missionary journey. In Pisidian Antioch, he was expelled. That's Acts 13.50. And then as he comes to Iconium, they tried to stone him and he had to escape. That's Acts 14.5. And here in Lystra, they succeed in stoning Paul, so much so that they thought that Paul was dead. And so the more Paul preaches, the more intense the persecution becomes. And after they stoned him, they dragged him out of the city like a piece of trash, thinking he was dead. Well, he's surrounded by his disciples. They stood there around him, and all of a sudden, Paul gets up, and he goes back into the city. Uh, Some have said that this is a resurrection story. Uh, Luke never says he's dead. Uh, He only says that they thought he was dead. But Paul gets up somehow. I don't know how, how he did that. When everybody thought he was dead, he must have looked like quite a mess, but he stands up and walks back into the city with the people who just stoned him. Was Paul crazy to go back to the place where he had just received this kind of treatment? Well, we know that this was a Roman colony. Uh, It was not legal for them to stone him, so they probably did it uh, as mob violence and dragged him out of the city to hide the evidence, but Paul probably went back to some place like maybe the equivalent of their city hall where he knew Romans might be, uh, so he'd know he'd be a little more safe. But We don't know exactly uh, where he went, and we don't know uh, what he said to the people who were there, but we do know that Satan's schemes failed. And we know that because we know that Paul was able to preach the gospel because he was able to establish a church in Lystra. And we'll see that next week. So at some point during this ordeal, he must have told them, Jesus is your only God. He's the only God there is. All these other things are worthless and vain, and you must believe in him, and you must follow him only, and you must abandon all these other gods. And that's what we have to tell our culture as well, right? Our culture isn't necessarily bothered by the idea of Jesus. Most people believe that Jesus lived. Most people believe that Jesus was a good guy. It's when you tell them that Jesus is the only way to heaven That's when culture fights back. Why? Because this culture doesn't want to be told that they have to believe anything, let alone something as important as how it is that you get to heaven. This culture wants to believe that they make their own truth and they can decide for themselves how they want to get to heaven. And and the world thinks us arrogant that we come and tell them the truth. The world hates us because we refuse to celebrate sin, because we refuse to accept that what is false is true. We deny that a person can make his own truth. We believe that God is the only author of truth. We believe that God has spoken inerrantly, infallibly, and authoritatively in the Bible, and that God sent his son to die on a cross for our sins, and that he rose again on the third day. And we believe that only by belief in Jesus can we have heaven and eternity with the Father. And we preach this message not to be right, not to win arguments, but because we want to love people and we want to be obedient to God. We preach this message because these people need to hear it in order to be saved. 
And we want to tell them that God loves them and grace is available to them, to anyone who will receive it. And we have to be careful about how we preach this message to this culture, just like Paul had to adapt his message to the culture he was preaching to. The gospel never changes, but the way you preach it according to who you're preaching to has to be adapted. You have to adapt it to your audience. But like Paul, we are up against a culture that demands that we accept, tolerate, and even celebrate their belief system. And if we won't do it, they will hate us. So how do we take this information? How do we learn from this not to fall into Satan's traps that we set for us and then for, that he sets for us? And then how do we learn not to become absorbed into the culture uh, and yet live outside of it uh, so that we can be Christians and preach the gospel and obey Christ? Well, here's a couple of applications for us. The first one is this, beware of the need for praise. Ephesians 6 tells us, to put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Satan knows your greatest weakness, and your greatest weakness is different than my greatest weakness. So you have to know what your weakness is, and you have to build up defenses against it. But everyone is susceptible to the dangers of praise. Sometimes we do good things for the wrong reasons. Uh, sometimes we need to be praised, and that's why we do it. We just need praise, and we're doing it because of our need to be praised rather than just the idea that we need to serve God and to serve others. So as an example, let's say you had $100,000 to give to the church. You could either give that money anonymously, or you could make sure that everybody knew that you gave that gift. Well, why would you do it publicly? Probably for praise. Why not give it anonymously so that only God gets the glory? And that's an extreme example, I know, but where do you see the need for praise as a problem in your own life? Uh, whenever the, the need for praise leads to pride rather than humility, or whenever you use the praise of others as a measure of your own self-worth, well, that's a problem. Whenever you forget that the gifts that you have are given by God and you hoard that praise for yourself, that can be a problem. The praise of others should be an opportunity to boast about Christ. Remember Paul said many times, I will not boast about anything except for Christ in me. Uh, and that way God would be glorified in him. So how do we fight this need for praise? How do we avoid this satanic trap? We need to check our motivation for everything that we do. We have to be sure that we are doing whatever we are doing for God's glory and not our own. You know, you people are so nice to me. Uh, after I preach, many of you tell me that you enjoyed the sermon or, or you enjoyed uh, my, my weekly or so email to you. You tell me that you, you liked what I wrote. And, you know, that can become intoxicating. That's a danger for me. I have to be careful not to get so caught up in that kind of praise. I like it and I appreciate it. But if that becomes something that I need or something that I crave, well, that's a problem. And praise becomes an idol. Uh, so whenever we do something that could result in people praising us, we have to prepare in advance how we're going to handle that praise and always be sure that we have a way to act humbly in humility and to deflect that praise uh, back towards God and giving God the glory. So beware of the need for praise. It's something that exists in all of us. Secondly, eliminate envy. You know, praise is something that others give to us and we can't control whether others praise us or not. But envy is something that comes from inside of us, right? And we should be able to control that. 
Uh, it's difficult to admire somebody and not have that admiration uh, escalate to, to envy um, and not want that ability or talent for ourselves. Like when I go to a concert, I can be very envious of the talent of the people on stage or when I hear a really great sermon, I can be envious of that preacher's ability to preach. But even minor examples like that say to God that I am not, not satisfied with the gifts that he has given me. And if envy stopped there, it would be bad enough. But oftentimes it doesn't. James 1:14 and 15 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The Greek word for lust there is epithumia. Uh, and it means a great desire for something, a longing or a craving. Uh, lust is not just a sexual term in the Greek, like we often associate that term with in English. Uh, it's really a synonym for envy, and it can lead to death, our own or even the death of others. Uh, Cain killed Abel out of envy. Uh, the motivation for almost every murder of an Old Testament king in, uh, in the Bible is envy. The murderer wanted to become king himself. Mark 15 says that the Jews handed Jesus over to be killed because of envy. Uh, we are not likely to kill anyone, but envy can create a bitter heart. It can destroy relationships with each other. Uh, it can certainly hinder your relationship with Jesus if you are not satisfied with what he has given you and you're complaining that he has not given you the gifts that you envy in someone else. So how can we protect against envy uh, and the damage that it can cause? First, of course, you have to be aware of it. You have to recognize it in you. When you see somebody else and you feel a little bit of envy, you have to figure out, oh, I recognize this. This is envy. I got to put this down. I have to be thankful to God for what he has done for me. So confess it to God. Thank God for the gifts that he has given to you. And then aim to crush that envy in your life. Don't covet what he has given to someone else. Uh, admire, but don't let that admiration escalate to envy. Uh, give thanks to God for that person's gifts. Uh, our attitude of joy and thanksgiving is part of our witness to the world and can lead us to an opportunity to share the gospel with someone else. And finally, in terms of assimilation into the world, we need to be in the world, but not of it. You know, when Paul encountered this pagan culture, he had three options, right? He could run away from it, he could assimilate into it, or he could become uh, in it, but yet not become part of it. He chose option three. He was not like salt, which dissolves in water. He was more like oil, which you can pour into water, but still remains separate from the water. You know, when the Titanic sailed uh, from England to New York, when it was in the water, it was fine. But when it hit an iceberg, it became of the water, and then it sank, and that's when it became a problem. And we face that same danger as well. We have to live in this world without falling into the traps that Satan sets for us and without becoming immersed in the world. We have to be apart from the world and yet in it so we can preach the gospel to them. And that's a hard thing to do. Jesus prayed in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so Jesus was praying for us to be part of the world, in it, but not of it, so that we could stand apart and preach this gospel. Now, 
Jesus prayed that prayer right before he went to the cross, right? And he died on that cross and he was in the, in the ground for three days. He was resurrected, he ascended, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father because God was satisfied with that sacrifice. And so do you think that Jesus' prayer would be an acceptable prayer to God, a prayer that God would answer? Uh, I do, amen, God would answer that prayer. And so we can cooperate with Jesus and we can keep ourselves from the world, even though it's a difficult thing to do. We need to pray a lot. We need to read our Bibles. We need to spend time with other Christians and be sure that we're always deflecting the glory that comes to us and give that glory to God and, and look for opportunities to preach the gospel because that's why God left us here. So let's pray that we will not fall prey to Satan's traps and that we would be light in this dark world. Lord God, you've given us a tough task. You've left us here, Lord. You could have taken us home at our salvation, but you didn't do that because you have work for us to do, Lord. And that work is to preach the gospel to a culture that is hostile to it, a culture that doesn't want to be told truth, a, gospel that, or a, a culture that wants to create its own truth and wants to tell you how they plan to get to heaven. And Lord, that's the opposite of, of what your truth is. That's the opposite, opposite of biblical truth, Lord. As we, as we encounter this culture, give us the strength not to assimilate into this culture, to tell them the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and he came back the third day and he's coming a second time and you can have salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ if you simply believe the gospel. Lord, that's a message that we need to preach. Give us the courage to preach it. Open hearts, Lord, so that we can preach it and that message will be received. We pray in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.